Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. scripture is clear. Uh, God calls us to make disciples, and that's what we want to be about, and that's who we want to partner with, people who are making disciples, and that happens in a whole host of ways. It happens by, by people whom we partner with in, in Montana, happens with people who we partner with in undisclosed countries around this world, uh, some of which have recently safely traveled back to the States from a really challenging portion of our world um, right now. Um, others um, are, are just going through um, whatever God has placed before them in, in seeking to follow the Lord's leading. And I'm so grateful to partner with people like Dale and Jill and the many other people whom we partner with for advancing the kingdom and sharing the gospel and making disciples of all nations. And so it's great to have you here. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 7 this morning as we open our uh, scripture, as we open the scriptures today. Um, this weekend was a flurry of activity. Not only do we have things being placed on the roof, but on Friday night, we had 49 or so students plus leaders here for the youth or the, the student ministry all-nighter. And I was here for a few minutes of it, and everyone on Sunday mo- or Saturday morning, they were looking good, maybe a little tired, but um, they had a great time playing games, singing, hearing a message of the gospel, and engaging in these important things and building relationships together. So I just want to say, uh, Leaders, thank you so much for giving of your 12 hours there uh, during a very challenging uh, time of day where most of us are probably sleeping uh, in loving kids well and engaging them relationally in important ways to further God's kingdom in their life. And so thank you for that. And students, hope you had a great time building relationships and learning more about Jesus. Um, We are in Daniel's, in in the message of Daniel. Uh, We've been in several narrative uh, segments over the course of the last few weeks. In fact, I've loved seeing some of the kids' sermon notes that I've been able to receive and have pictures of Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a thing of fire. Uh, but today we are going to enter into the second half of Daniel's book. Um, the second half of Daniel's book is what is known as apocalyptic writing. Can you say the word apocalyptic? apocalyptic. Okay, there's a big word. It actually comes from the Greek, and it's a certain type of writing. It it comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, and it simply means revelation. And there's a couple of portions of scripture that are known as apocalyptic writing. One of them is here in Daniel 7 through the end of the book. And so there's, there's, just a, there's, a, there's a narrative change going on. We're, we're not going through the same amount of stories. And here's what happened to Daniel. Daniel's experiencing visions and dreams from the Lord and going, what do I do with this? And how do I communicate this? And we're going to find that some of these things really disturbed him. But we find this apocalyptic writing in places like Daniel, all of Zechariah, Matthew 24 and 25, 2 Thessalonians, and the book of Revelation. We'll get to some of those, at least in the book of Revelation, over the course of this next year. But I tell you what genre it is because that helps us understand it better. It helps us seek to interpret it properly. Apocalyptic, in just common language, can communicate an impending sense of doom, a feeling that existence might come to an end at any moment. In fact, in some of this type of writing, there's often angels, visions, dreams, and there's other supernatural things going on that were God not to insert himself in this way, 
the writer would not have the, the wisdom or the knowledge to be able to communicate this, but it's something that God wants communicated. The other part of apocalyptic literature, though, is that there, there's a sense, biblically, that there is hope and optimism and joy, even in the midst of this sense of impending doom. Um, you could define it, as one writer did, as apocalyptic literature, or apocalyptic writing, celebrates God's victory over the enemies of the godly. All right? So, so there's a stark contrast. There's People who do and walk in wickedness. We're going to look at four beasts today and a little horn and all that kind of stuff. And then there's the people of God who experience wrath, not the wrath of God, but they experience this wrath and this this persecution from the beasts and from other people. And at the end of all this, you look in a broken world and there's a cry for justice. And the end of apocalyptic writing is essentially God saying there will be justice. You can bank on it. You look at things going on in Asia or things going on in South America, things going on in the um, western part of Asia, Africa. Our world is not immune, even in the United States, to a lot of terrible things. Things that are ungodly, things that are wrong, things that are sin. People abused, people being murdered, people being left for dead, people being mistreated and being forced to work in things that they shouldn't be forced to work in. All these things give us a cry in our hearts. God, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Apocalyptic writing says, there's coming a day when God will set it all right. So, it celebrates God's victory over enemies of the ungodly. Um, the other thing about metaphor or about apocalyptic writing, um, this revelation type writing, is it's very heavy in metaphors. There's lots of pictures that to some extent in the current time, you know, when Daniel's writing this, he may understand some of these pictures and he may not understand the fullness of some of these pictures. We have to, in a metaphor-rich style of writing, understand that there is accuracy. We, we can know some of the details of this stuff, but we also have to be careful about not pressing an image further than what scripture allows. And so when we look at Daniel 7 this morning, we're going to pretty much stay in Daniel 7, meaning I'm not going to go to Revelation 11, 12, and 13, which has direct ties to this chapter. I'm going to save that for when we study Revelation 11, 12, and 13. But what I want to help us understand t- today, and, and what God wants to help us understand, is what is he revealing to Daniel, and why does it matter to Daniel and to the people of his time, and how can that bring us hope in our life today? Apocalyptic literature is kind of like this. It's kind of like driving to go see the mountains. Uh, Years ago, when I was but a wee lad, um, we were on a family vacation with my parents. We were in a like 1989 red Dodge Caravan that was near its end of life, but we didn't know that yet. Um, We're driving towards the mountains. We're going towards Colorado, these these amazing rocky mountains. And from a distance, you could see the mountains, all right? You you could see them afar. You had an idea. You knew you were going there. You knew there were ups and there were downs, but you didn't see them in the same light as we saw them when we were climbing up Pikes Peak, all right? Pikes Peak, kind of on the right-hand side here of your screen. Uh, We were climbing up Pikes Peak in our car in our old 
red car started to overheat. We pull off to the side of the road. We let it cool down. Half an hour later, we're going back up the mountain. Then we're pulling it down and we're letting it like come back to normal temperature. It took us a long time to climb Pike's Peak. It took us a long time to go back down too, because you know, if you're not careful, you burn your brakes and you got to let your brakes cool down. And, and then we were going up to Canada and then we were going back home. And guess what my parents did when we got back to Ohio? They bought a new car. They were like, we're done with this. The perspective you have when you're on the side of a mountain climbing up in a car is very different than what you have when you're crossing over on one of the interstates in your flat and then you see the hills up ahead. When Daniel is given this writing, he's, he's looking at it largely from a distance. He, he, there are some things that are happening in his present time and that will happen in his present time. But when God gives him this dream in the first year of Belshazzar, Daniel doesn't have a knowledge of all the ups and the downs and how everything in every small specific circumstance is going to work out. But what he does know is this. God is on the throne. And while there's a rising of kingdoms and nations and jockeying for power in the ancient world, there is one king whose kingdom will last forever. It's kind of like what happens in Daniel chapter 2 when Daniel's given, or when the king Nebuchadnezzar's given this dream of a statue. You've got a head, you've got shoulders and arms, you've got your stomach and your thighs, and then you've got your legs and your feet. What, what happens is Daniel interprets this dream by the, by the power of God, and he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're that statue, but there's going to be one who comes after you, and one who comes after them, and one who comes after them. And this is a kind of a, con a continuation of what God has already been revealing. But Daniel doesn't fully see all of the details in the present moment. Um, apocalyptic literature differs from um, prophetic literature in that prophecy, uh, in that it's a more indirect mode of communication. In, in other words, a, a prophet might come and say, here is what God says, boom. And there's a certain amount of that that's going on with this. But here, um, Daniel's getting a vision and he's going, and then there's this, and then there's this, and then there's this. So there's a little bit more, okay, what does that mean? Because in some respects, it can be a little harder to understand. So a couple of cautions for us as we enter this genre. We have to seek to understand how the original hearer understood the message in their context. That, that is key for us being able to rightly interpret what is going on. We also have the benefit of history, so we can look at that in a way that they couldn't look at. But we have to understand how the original hearer understood the message. Number two, we have to be cautious in not pushing images beyond what is reasonable and always make sure we understand what's the main point of the passage. There's a whole lot of details, but never forget the main point in amidst all the details. And frankly, that, that's a challenge for me because I love the details. I love the details. But we have to keep the main thing the main thing. Um, it's also helpful, when appropriate, always use scripture to interpret scripture. All right? That, that's a first kind of like Bible study tip. If Daniel uses an image or something in the book of Daniel that's also used in the book of Daniel, use that to try to understand it properly before going outside of that to other extraneous sources. Uh, finally, uh, it's always important to maintain humility while we seek to understand what God is revealing. Maintain humility. I've read a few books, or not full books, but sections of, of work this week, and um, there's a whole lot of opinions about a whole lot of things, and a whole lot of, well, this is this, and this is this, and this is this, and they all, sometimes you're like, all right, how do I understand and discern what is right and what is true here? And understanding that there is a humility that comes with, God, I want to understand your word. Holy Spirit, would you lead and guide me into what is true? 
and being the best student you can about what's in the text. Have humility when we do that. Um, Again, apocalyptic literature provides encouragement to the people of God. It reminds them that he is in control, especially during difficult days on earth. So I want to read the whole of the chapter and then um, hopefully on the back of your bulletin, you got a chart when you came in. And the reason, I'll, I'll tell you why in just a minute, why I gave you a chart. But would you, if you're not there already with me, please, let's open up to Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream with visions in his mind as he was lying in his bed. He wrote down the dream, and here's the summary of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I was watching, and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. Four huge beasts came up from the other sea. Each was different from the other. The first was like a lion, but had eagle's wings. I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and given a human mind. Suddenly another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth. Between its teeth it was told, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. Verse 6, while I was watching, another beast appeared. It was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. It had four heads and was given authority to rule. While I was watching in the night visions, a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful, and incredibly strong with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed, and it trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it. And it had ten horns. While I was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up from them, among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. There were eyes in this horn like a man's, and it had a mouth that spoke arrogantly. As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head was white as wool. His throne was, bla- was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was convened, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the arrogant words, the horn was speaking. As I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their authority to rule was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain Continued watching in the night visions, and I saw one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days, was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was deeply distressed within me, and the visions of my mind approached one of those who were standing by and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he let me know the interpretation of these things. These huge beasts, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. But the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, the one different from all the others, extremely terrifying with iron teeth and bronze claws, devouring, crushing, trampling with its feet, whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the 10 horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke arrogantly and that was more visible than the others. As I was watching, this horn waged war against the holy ones and was prevailing over them until 
the ancient of days arrived and a judgment was given in favor of the holy ones of the most high for the time had come and the holy ones took possession of the kingdom. This is what he said. The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth. Different from all the other kingdoms, it will devour the whole earth, trample it down and crush it. The 10 horns are 10 kings who will rise from this kingdom. Another different from the previous ones will arise after them and subdue three kings. He will speak words against the most high and oppress the holy ones of the most high. He will intend to change religious laws and or religious festivals and laws. And the holy ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will convene, and his dominion will be taken away to be completely destroyed forever. The kingdom, dominion, and greatness of these kingdoms, of the kingdoms under all heaven, will be given to the people, the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey him. This is the end of the interpretation. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts terrified me greatly. My face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Father, would you help us understand this by the leading of your Holy Spirit? God, give us ears to hear how to rightly approach passage like this and how to rightly walk out of the power you give us. God, make that personal to each one of us today. We pray for the glory of Jesus. Amen. So you have heard it. Now you have a chart. And the reason is because there's so many details here that if you don't chart it out, sometimes you can get confused as to what's happening and when it's happening. And hang on to this because when we come back to Revelation... This will come in handy. Um, what I want to do is kind of give you some of these, I, some of these um, things as a part of the, as a part of the chart. Um, you can go through the text and actually do this later today if you miss something, or you can come up and get something if I go too fast and 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 you miss it. But I want to point out all the different things going on here. The first thing is that there's four beasts. Hang on a second. I jumped to chapter or page two, and that would be scary if we just jumped to page two already. All right, here we go. Um, there's four beasts. The first one is like a lion. Yeah, here we go. Uh, the first one is like a lion. All right. Th this is how um, Daniel sees this in his dream. It's like a lion. It's not a lion, but it's like a lion. Um, verse four tells that to us. It's like a lion, and you can put in your description things like, it's a lion with eagle's wings. It, it has torn wings, and it's lifted from the ground. Um, it's like a human being uh, with a human mind or human heart. The, the actual Aramaic word there is probably best translated, a human heart was given to it. All right, so, so that's how you describe what this first beast was. Now, it's interesting because um, when Daniel sees this, um, lions pervaded the culture in which he lived. Um, one of the things that he saw constantly was this. One of these glazed tile walkways, or not walkways, but, but uh, I think they're called a frisee, and they're on the side of um, some of the processional ways coming into the Babylonian Empire. In fact, there's 120 lion statues that marked the processional way to the temple of Marduk in Babylon. All right? So he saw lions everywhere. When Daniel sees lion, I think he's pretty, you know, he comes through all this and he goes, all right, lion, yeah, I, I, know, I, I know kind of what God is saying here. Th there's, there's a kingdom. And, and it parallels Daniel chapter 2 where um, God actually says, this first kingdom is going to be you, Nebuchadnezzar, and there's going to be other kings and kingdoms that arise from you. 
So you have this interpretation. All the text gives us for the interpretation. If you look briefly at um, verse 17, it says, these huge beasts, four in number, are four kings or four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. All right, so in verse 17, it's basically saying, hey, it's a kingdom. Contextually though, I think we can rightly understand this is what God is doing as a part of the Babylonian empire because of this heavy fixation on lions and a part of what God has been revealing to Daniel. First one is like a lion. The second kingdom is like a bear. I heard a couple of people say it. Yeah, it's like a bear. We come to the bear. This is a Syrian bear. The last one was an Asiatic lion, which I didn't know they existed, but they're really kind of cool looking. Um, this bear is interesting, though. It's like a bear, and it's raised on one side. There's three ribs in its mouth, and it says, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. All right? Verse 17, again, says that this is essentially earthly kingdom number two. All right, for the first part of the interpretation, you could just say for Babylon, or, or instead of Babylon, the text says earthly kingdom or king, number one, for, for the one that's like a bear, it's earthly king or kingdom, number two. Now, there is some discussion and some debate about which kingdom this is. And the reason for that is, is long. We can talk about it in Sunday school if you want in our adult Bible class over here after we're, after we're finished. But it comes down in part to the dating of Daniel. It, and it comes down to part, do you understand or do you understand the Medes and the Persians to be one people group or do you understand them to be separate? I take the position that I think it's Medes and Persians as together as one group. One of the reasons for that is Daniel's writing. If we use scripture to interpret scripture, one of the reasons for that is because that kingdom is always lumped together in Daniel's writing. Chapter 8, verse 20, talks about the, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And, and there's a stronger kingdom out of those two as well, which would kind of make sense because you've got this like raised up on one side, the three ribs in the mouth, some have suggested could be the three kingdoms that are devoured by Media, Persia, Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt. And there's this call to, to get up and devour much flesh because there's another changeover of the earthly kingdoms. Um, one thing I don't think I... I I just mentioned it with regard to the line. Not, not only is the line the symbol of the Babylonian empire, um, what you have here is a description that, that kind of fits with Nebuchadnezzar. He, he's a lion who moves with eagles, eagle's wings. In other words, he's swift in accomplishing certain, you know, conquering, but then his wings are torn. He's lifted from the ground and he's given a human, uh, he's like a human being, given a human mind or human heart. And you come to the end of Nebuchadnezzar's story and God returns sanity to him. And God does something here in that passage that seems to go hand in hand with what Daniel is being told in this vision in Daniel chapter 7. So we have like a lion, we have like a bear. And then we have in verse 6, we have the third kingdom. It's like a leopard. There we go. All right. So you could describe this kingdom as a four bird-like wings on its back. In other words, it's moving fast. You could describe it as uh, four heads with ruling authority. I forgot to show you this. This is uh, from actually the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Uh, we know about them from like the time of Darius and Esther and Mordecai. This is a, this is a piece of artwork that was a part of that kingdom that, Neb that uh, Mordecai and Esther would have walked past. All right, here we go. We have like a leopard. All right, 
one of the amazing things that we see historically that Daniel didn't see at this point because it hadn't happened yet is after the Medes and the Persians comes a kingdom, i.e. Greece, and they take over the entire world pretty much. In 10 years, here is what Alexander the Great conquered. Think about that. Like in 10 years, this was before cars, this was before airplanes, this was before tanks. He, with his generals, took over this entire area. It's kind of stunning. It's kind of like he has, um, it's kind of like he's moving like a bird with wings on his back. Greece came in and swiftly conquered the known world in 10 years. The four heads, there's a whole bunch of different views on that. We can talk about them more later if you want, but possible views like could be the four, um, the four persons or the generals that were underneath um, Alexander the Great. It could refer to the four regions of power or the four points of com- compass on a fragmented empire. I think it's probably the generals. Um, but the idea is this. There's another kingdom that comes in. So kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. We come to the fourth kingdom, And it's described this way in verse 7. It's described as a terrible beast. There's no like a this. In fact, kids, if you're writing your sermon notes, I would love to hear your best, I would love to see your best picture of a terrible beast. Give me your best, okay? How would you describe a beast? How would you draw this picture of a beast that is described in the text as dreadful? I think this is verse 7. Yeah, it appears it's dreadful. It's terrible. It's very strong. There's two large rows of iron teeth It's devouring, it's crushing everything. It's different from the prior three, all right? It's a fourth beast. It represents a fourth kingdom, but it says it's different from the prior three, and it has 10 horns on it, all right? Again, verse 17 says that this is one of the four kings or kingdoms that will rise from the earth. I think it likely represents Rome, but then we get a little bit more from this, because in verse 8, he's considering these horns, all these 10 horns. And while he's considering them, he says, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up from them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And there were eyes in this horn like a man's, and it had a mouth that spoke arrogantly. So the picture we're given in this kind of summary statement is it's small, it uproots three horns, it plants itself down as the eighth horn in the set of ten, that used to be ten, it has human eyes and it has an arrogant mouth. We find a little bit later that it also wages war with the saints until the ancient of day comes. And so it's one who does does some degree of battle against God's people. It comes in and just tries to hammer and hammer and hammer. It's like beast number four, but the reason I put a a dashed marker on your notes is because it's like it, but it's not fully yet. There seems to be a distinction that is going on here. So I just called it like earthly kingdom number four, A, and then I called it earthly king or kingdom four, B, because it seems to be tied to it somehow, and yet it seems to be distinct as well. There's 10 kings that arise. This this horn arises and supplants the three horns. It harasses the holy ones. um, And it changes times and laws. Uh, Later in the book says, in verses 24 and 25, um, this probably has to do with religious corruption through history, the times and the changing of morality. And it says that the holy ones are given into his hand for time, times, 
and half a time. So if you have a footnote, years probably says three and a half or three and a half years. It, it tends to be three and a half something because we have time, times, and half a time. Later in the scripture, we'll find a little bit more identification about this time, times, and half a time. But for this period, these people are given over to this beast. And he tries to devour them. Now, what you have, just looking at the text, the first eight verses kind of summarize these four kingdoms. You come to verses 9 and 10, and there's a, a, a stop, right? There's a change of scene. I'm going to look at that in just a minute. But then it comes back a little later in the chapter, and it's like he dives into a little bit more detail about what has already been recorded in verses 1 through 8. What I want you to notice, though, is the center of this chapter, like I said at the beginning, it can be really easy to get caught up in all of the details. We can talk about those. But when Daniel's writing this, he writes it in a specific literary way. Common to this time, they would often put the most important thing they wanted you to recognize and understand right smack dab in the middle. It's called chiasm, if you, if you care. But, but they, they kind of build up to it, and then they build away from it. What he's wanting to do is show you that he has this incredible, like, nightmare, dream, vision, and it's just coming. He can't sleep. He, he is bothered by it. And this horn comes up in verse 8. And he says, as I kept watching, there were thrones that were set in place. The Ancient of Days took his seat. Notice how the Ancient of Days, this is also on the back of your sheet. This is verses 9 and 10 of your thing. Notice how the Ancient of Days is described. He's described as one who is seated to judge. He's like, he's like white, his clothes like snow. He had hair like lamb's wool. He, he had a chariot that he sat on, which is ablaze with fire. There's a river of fire proceeding from his presence, proceeding from his presence. There's thousands ministering to him, tens of thousands ready to serve or to worship him. And he says in the latter part of chapter 10 that a court is convened and books are opened. God is telling Daniel, who's serving in a pagan land, in a pagan court, Daniel, I know you see a lot of things shifting around. I, I know you see things are not like solidified and there's ungodliness all around you. But Daniel, have no fear because there's coming a day when there's one who will come and he will rule and reign righteously. He will come and he will judge with great perfection. J judges today have incredible power and incredible authority. Um, but there's one who's coming who's not going to screw up the judgment. He's not going to mess it up. He, he knows what's right. He knows what's wrong. He knows how to properly deliver the right verdict. Daniel is stopped in his tracks. And it's like all these things are going on. This is being uprooted and this is this and this. And it's almost like God says, take your eye off this and focus on me. When we see phrases like the ancient of days and this description, these, these are very appropriate descriptions for God Almighty. These are, are, you know, flaming fire. Think of all the times in the scripture when God uh, 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 um, revealed himself to someone and there's fire, right? He appears to Moses and there's 
fire in this bush that's burning that doesn't consume up. There's a, there's a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud for the ancient Israelites as they followed God. Sometimes God brought fire for judgment in the Old Testament times as well. He wants to say, you're, you have all these things, they're coming, yes, there is going to come a time, Daniel, where it's going to get worse and it's going to get worse. You know, you get that sense in the, in the end because his thoughts terrified him greatly. His face turned pale. He kept the matter to himself. And he's thinking about all this interpret, the interpret, interpretation that's been given to him about how there's this beast that's going to come in this fourth kingdom and it's going to devour and trample and crush the world. And there's going to be all these, these forces that will speak words, or he will speak words, talking about the Antichrist. We'll look at that another time, but talking about the Antichrist here, I believe. Speaking words against the Most High and oppressing the, the people of God. He's going to change morality. He's going to change uh, religious festivals. Daniel, there's coming a time when it's not going to be great. But then there's going to be a time in which the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ will come and he will reign over the whole earth. D Daniel looks forward to this as we do as well. For, for, for the last 2,000 years, we've seen war and war and war and war. And we've seen some of the fulfillment. You know, the coming of the Son of Man that's used to describe, or that's used to describe this one who comes in verse 13. That's a phrase Jesus uses for himself. When, when he says, and he's like, before, um, he's before Pilate, he says to him, I am the son of man and I am going to be coming. You can look that up. That's a very bad paraphrase of a passage from Mark chapter 14, I think it is. He's identifying himself later in that gospel of, I'm the son of man. I'm going to come. I'm going to set things right. But what we see happen in this passage is something that we have not seen yet because we still look around and we see kingdoms rise and fall. We see kingdoms try to come and overtake and overthrow in war against God by also warring against God's people. Trying to change the definitions of things that God said, here's the way to understand it. And then we redefine it, culturally speaking, not we, but the culture redefines it. And they says, no, that's not what that is. But there's coming a day in which the son of man will return and he will rule and he will reign. When books are opened, we come to the end of the book of Revelation and we find that these books are opened and all the people whose names are found in the book of life, not because of anything you did, not because you could earn your way to God, simply because you said to Jesus, you said to God, I'm a sinner. God, I, I, I need a savior. I, I need one to step in and rescue me. Daniel's looking this from the viewpoint of him and his Jewish people in captivity or in exile in Babylon. But we look at it from the standpoint of, man, there's no way we could have um, life in freedom without Jesus. There's this constant focus of terrible beasts and destruction and unforgiving power and of oppression. But what Daniel is reminded of amidst all this is that there's an arrival of a coming kingdom that will prevail over and above all others for all time. Something which is here in part. When Jesus came, he said, the kingdom is within your midst because he was bringing the kingdom. 
but he wasn't bringing the kingdom in its fullness because one day he's coming back to rule and to reign and to return as conquering king and judge. We have that to look forward to in the midst of a world where there's a whole lot of things that go wrong. God's giving Daniel a picture of what is to come. God's telling Daniel, there's going to be tough times ahead, much tougher than what he has seen already. And just think of what Daniel has already seen. Probably in his 15 or so birthday around in there, he's carted off to a foreign place to serve a foreign king. He faces um, being killed because the king has a dream. Uh, God gives Daniel the ability to interpret that dream. He sees the, the persecution that goes on of his own people and all other peoples around that time by kings like Nebuchadnezzar. He'll see it by kings like Belshazzar. He'll, he'll see it by kings like Darius. There's kingdoms that rise and fall. We look at things happening in places even like Ukraine today, and it causes us to yearn and long for justice because it's not the way God intended for it to be until sin then entered the world and God said, we are going to do something about this. And this is part of God's plan to do something about it. But at the, the center of his plan to do something about it is Jesus. The one who Colossians says this about. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness. And he's transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. See, we're born in sin. We're born separated from God. We can't make our way to God unless he were to make his way to us and make that possible. This rescue is possible through Jesus and Jesus alone. It says this in verse 14, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in him. My friends, we can't work our way to being right before God. Never work. We, we, we can't do enough good things. We can't not do enough bad things. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in him. This is why we celebrate communion, right? It reminds us of this picture. Christ's body broken for you. Christ's blood shed for you. When we take the cup, we're reminded that Jesus' death paid for our sin. It, it was the once for all sufficient atoning sacrifice to satisfy the holiness of God. To, to, to make us right when we couldn't be made right any other way. But not only that, when Jesus came and he gave us this picture, you know, here's, here's my, my blood shed for you. He said, this is my body that's broken for you. And we're called to walk in the power of Christ through the working of the Holy Spirit. His, his body, his life gives us life in our spirits for today. We have bodies that still fragment and decay, that get sick. We have our mind and our will and our emotions that are still subject to our flesh patterns, our ways in which we say, God, no, I want to go this way instead of your way. It doesn't change who we are when we're in Christ, but we have this kind of dilemma that exists in us sometimes. It's like what Paul says, why do I keep on sinning when I don't want to sin? And he says, who will rescue me from this body of death? says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. But the last thing is this, why does God wait? When he sees so much brokenness around us, why does he wait? Why does he wait and wait and wait? It's part of his plan 
But I think to understand God's heart, Peter helps us do that. He says this, the Lord does not delay his promise. And he's talking about the coming of the day of the Lord here. This coming time of judgment upon the whole world, whole, whole world, something like which we have not yet seen in its fullness this day. Right? We, we've seen incredible judgment. We've not seen judgment like this. But the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay. But he's patient. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's God's call for you today. If you're not a follower of Jesus, come to the Father and find your forgiveness of sin in him. Find your life in Jesus Christ. That's our call as followers of Jesus. Those of you who are already disciples of Jesus, that's our call to take this message because God has given us the privilege to steward this message here on earth. He's given us the opportunity to say, I love that family member. I do not want them to perish. I want to share the good news of Jesus with them. I love that coworker. I do not want them to perish apart from God. I need to share the good news of Jesus. You can't change their heart. All you and I can do is be faithful to share the messages the Holy Spirit leads us. It's really a prayerful dependence. As we get ready to move towards communion. I want to read you a story that um, President Ronald Reagan read um, during the 1984 prayer breakfast. He's talking about the power of prayer, and he says this, the power of prayer can be illustrated by a story that goes back to the fourth century. The Asian monk living in a little remote village, spending most of his time in prayer or tending the garden from which he obtained his sustenance. I hesitate to say the name, President Reagan says, because I'm not sure I know the pronunciation, but let me take a chance. The name was Telemachus back in the fourth century. One day, Telemachus, he thought he heard the voice of God telling him to go to Rome. And believing that he had heard, he set out seeking to be led by the Spirit. Weeks later, he arrived there having traveled most of the way on foot. And it was a time, at a time of festival in Rome, they were celebrating a triumph over the Goths. And he followed a crowd into the Colosseum. And there in the midst of this great crowd, he saw the gladiators come forth, stand before the emperor and say, we who are about to die salute you. And he realized that they were going to fight to the death for the entertainment of the crowds. And he cried out, in the name of Christ, Stop. His voice was lost in the tumult of the great Colosseum. And as the games began, this monk made his way down through the crowd, climbed over the wall, and dropped to the floor of the arena. Suddenly the crowds saw this scrawny little figure making his way out to the gladiators and saying over and over again, in the name of Christ, stop. They thought it was part of the entertainment, and at first they were amused. But then when they realized it wasn't, they grew belligerent and angry. And as he was pleading with the gladiators, in the name of Christ, stop. One of them plunged his sword into his body, and he fell to the sand of the arena in death. And his last words were these, in the name of Christ, stop. Suddenly, a strange thing happened. The gladiators stood looking at this tiny form lying in the sand. A silence fell over the Colosseum, and then someplace up in the upper tiers, an individual made his way to an exit and left, and others began to follow. In the dead silence, everyone left the Colosseum. 
That was the last battle to the death between gladiators in the Roman Colosseum. Never again did anyone kill or did men kill each other for the entertainment of the crowd. He says, one tiny voice that could hardly be heard above the tumult. In the name of Christ, stop. It's something we could be saying to one another as we engage our world today. We cannot control the forces of this world. What we can do is proclaim Christ, who is King, who is Lord. I invite the worship team to come up. Philippians 2 says it this way. It says, Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his, his own advantage. But assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men, and when he had found, when he had come as a man in an external form, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him, gave him the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His is the name we are called to proclaim even and among the times in which we live. And in that name, there is power. There's power to set the captive free. There's power to make the lost found. In that name, there is power for everything God wants us to do and to be about in this world as we await the coming of the King. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.